This morning I'm working through Galatians. I'm continuing that series that we have been working through. And you will notice today that if you uh, have a bulletin with an outline in it, that the outline is flipped sideways because I'm going to work through the passage in ways that, that chart down a column. So you'll have that to follow along with. But as I go back through that and go through those verses that go into those columns and how that charts out, it may be helpful to have the passage open next to you. So when I read it in a moment, it will be on the screen that you'll see it there. But as I make reference back to it as we go through the message, it might be helpful to see that in front of you as well. So it it is also written in your bulletin, the passages. You can see it there for reference. Or if you are uh, watching this at home, if you're live streaming along with us uh, on our website where you found this live stream, fellowshipcrc.com sermons, there's also a place where you can download the bulletin that has all of this mapped out for us today too. Okay? In the 1990 movie Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin plays eight-year-old Kevin McAllister, who is accidentally left behind by himself on a vacation when his family goes off to Europe over Christmas. So eight-year-old Kevin is left home all by himself to fend for himself during the week that it takes for his mother to find flights and get back to him. And during that time, eight-year-old Kevin learns how to live like an adult, right? Learns how to live like grown-ups do, making his own meals and doing the laundry and going out for groceries. And even to the point where eight-year-old Kevin has to defend his home from some bungling robbers who are trying to break in and burglarize the house. It's a fun holiday classic movie, but the thing that makes it sort of a comedy that way is that the premise is so ridiculous, Right? The idea that an eight-year-old child would step up and do all of the adult things that need to happen, even to the point of thwarting burglars to defend the home that he's in. Kids don't normally do stuff like that. We don't normally have those expectations of children that they would behave in that way. In fact, we intentionally have some safeguards in place for our children so that they don't have to face those kinds of worldly complications and threats until they're old enough, until they're ready to do that on their own. Not just true for us in our time, but apparently this is also true in the time of Paul as he writes as well. Because what we're going to see in the passage today that that Paul makes reference as he's giving this letter to the Galatians to the difference between when you're a child and when you're grown up and how that applies to what he's been trying to tell us over these weeks in this message about how we are children of God, no longer held under the law, but now free with faith in Christ. So I'm beginning today, we are up to chapter 3, I'm beginning at verse 23, and I'm going to take that into the first verses of chapter 4. So finishing chapter 3 and into chapter 4, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians 3, starting at verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today, as we go through this, you'll have that uh, outline, the chart that you flip sideways in your, in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that and see how this passage goes. Since we're about um, now getting into chapter 4 of Galatians, maybe this is a good time just to remind ourselves for a moment of what Galatians is about, right? Take a step back and remind ourselves again of the big picture, of the theme that Paul is going after, because we've been at this several weeks of going section by section through it. So let's remind ourselves of the context of what Paul is writing about here. Galatia itself is not a particular church or city, but it's a region, So Paul writes the letter of Galatians to a group of churches in the area of Asia Minor. These are churches that either Paul or his colleagues planted and started in their missionary travels. And many of the people who joined and came to these churches then were Greeks, Gentile people who did not have Jewish background, but they come to faith in Christ. As time goes on then, some of the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem make their way to visit these churches, and they meet these Greek, Gentile, Christian converts in these churches. And as time went on, the Jewish Christians began to teach and tell the Greek, Gentile Christians, you need to start observing all of the cultural customs and rules and habits and rituals of the Jewish people in order to be a Christian in order to be a part of the church. That is what Paul is addressing. That's what Paul's writing about. So he writes the letter of Galatians as well as so many of his other New Testament letters in response to this tendency for the Jewish Christians to tell the Greek Christians, you need to do all these extra things that the Jewish people do in order to be part of the family of God's church. Paul writes and he says, no, faith in Jesus That's it. Not all this other cultural baggage of of what the Jewish people did. And and the Jewish people knew these things because it came from their Old Testament scriptures, what they referred to and what Paul refers to as the law. And we see that again in today's passage, that Paul is addressing that. But what we see today is we see how Paul lays that out for us in a way that shows a progression. And that's what I want to trace through today, a progression, a progression that includes timing, purpose, and result. 
So I'm going to work through some of the detail of this passage to show how this works, this timing, purpose, and result. And then we'll talk about uh, an application of what this means for us as we live this out today, all right? So since I only have so much room on the slide, I'm just going to give verse number references. I'm not going to fill in a lot of the extra. You can fill in some extra detail in your outline if you like. Let's see how this works. Timing, purpose, result as it comes in this passage. Timing, that there's a reference in this passage to something that has already taken place. So, for example, in the first one we see this taking place in verses 23 and 24a. A timing piece. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed so that the law was our guardian. Right? That's a timing reference, something that was. We were in custody under the law. The law was our guardian. Get how that works? It's making a reference to something that was. Then there's a purpose for this. The question is why. Why were we held in custody under the law? Why was the law our guardian? And it goes on in verse 24b to say, because when Christ came, we may be justified by faith. I know the, uh, the order of the wording in our English translation doesn't lump that together the way that it comes in Greek. That in Greek it would be something more closer to that we may be justified when Christ came by faith. It's a reference then to we were in custody under the law, But our custody under the law was so that or had the purpose of being justified by faith in Christ. And it produces a result. The result comes in verse 25. The result is that we are no longer under a guardian. No longer under the law. See how that works? Timing, purpose, result. We were under the custody of the law. The purpose of Christ's coming, then, is to give us justification by faith. The result is that we are now no longer under the law. That's one. Paul does this over and over again, though. So let's trace through this passage, see how this works. You find the next set of this coming in verses 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized. That is a reference to timing in 27a. You were baptized. Then there is something of purpose. Baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's a purpose. The purpose of baptism then is to signify this clothing with Christ. Now, obviously, it's not that you wear Jesus like a shirt Right? It's not a literal reference there, but no, Paul is making an analogy here then, that we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Our baptism signifies that, that when we are baptized, there there is a reference there that now it is the righteousness of Jesus that covers us, clothes us, that we are wrapped in his righteousness. And the result... In verse 28, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So, timing, that we have received baptism. Purpose, that we are now all covered, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Result, we are now all 
one in Christ Jesus. There's a key word in this section, though. The key word is all. I don't know that we highlight that enough as it comes to us in English, because in Greek, you see, in, in, in English, we have to say sentences in a certain order and for them to make sense, unless, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know how Yoda talks. He always puts the direct object first, and then... then uh, but in Greek... But in Greek, you can mix word orders in any order you want and still have a sentence that makes sense. And sometimes they will do that for emphasis by putting a word first that normally wouldn't be first. Paul does this in his section. It's the word all. Paul takes the word all and he puts that at the beginning of the sentence because that's his emphasis. So the emphasis here that he's making, even though he's talking about being baptized and being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the emphasis there is that, you know what, that's all of you. That's every single one of you who come to faith in Christ. All of you. That's the point that he's making in that section. And he summarizes that in verse 29. So if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. Now, there's one more of these. One more of these timing, purpose, result sections that come to us, okay? Tracing it down into chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. So also, when you were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces until God sent his son. So a, a restatement of, okay, we get the pattern now of what Paul is saying. This is now the third time he's, he's rephrased this idea, now in a different way. We were in slavery until God sent his son. But then, the purpose and the result in 5a and 5b. For the purpose of redeeming those under the law with the result that we may receive adoption to sonship. See how that works. We were slaves under the law until God sent his son for the purpose of redeeming those under the law with the result that we are now children of God, adopted to sonship. And he makes that language of family, sonship, in verse 6, that we call to him Abba, Father. But then in verse 7, it closes differently. Maybe we didn't catch this as it reads the way that we read it. But up to this point, starting with where I read it, verse 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, the pronouns are plural because he's emphasizing all, right? All of us. Uh, We don't really have good ways of doing that in English unless you're from Texas because then it would be all y'all. So that's how we read verses 23 all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. It's all y'all. Or if you're from the south side of Chicago, and then it's you guys, right? You get that sense that you're referring to a whole bunch of people. All of that is sort of this reference to it's everybody until you get to that very last verse that I read, verse 7. Now Paul shifts it personally. These are all singular pronouns. Now he's pointing individually. So he's making this argument that, yep, all of us are one in Christ. But by the way, you, yes, Specifically, you, in verse 7, you are no longer a slave. You are a child of God. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir, meaning that, that you are then receiving the inheritance of his righteousness. 
So a reference to all, but then being very specific. Yes, I'm talking about you, every single one of you. This includes you, not some other group, but you're a part of that. That's how it comes before us. So that's just a brief run-through of, yeah, timing, purpose, result, the way that Paul uses that progression to show these connections in this. But let me talk then about application. So what? What does this mean? All right, fine. So we, we saw a bit of the, the Greek construction of this passage and how that comes together and what Paul is saying there. But what difference does that make? What do we take away from that? How is this something instructive for us in our world and how we live in faith today? Well, it reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, it reminds us of our identity, or at least it should, right? That my identity as a child of God is based entirely upon faith in Jesus. Entirely. That that is who I am. It is said that there was this tradition in the early church, uh, the church that came after the time of the apostles, that there was a tradition in the early church in which when people would be baptized into the church, that that date of their baptism would become their new birthday. It would no longer be a reference to the actual physical day when they were born in this world, but, but the day when they were spiritually reborn became their new birthday. And they made that their birthday because that's, they said, that's where our identity is grounded that we want to be known then, first and foremost, primarily above all other things, as someone who is a child of God, that it comes to us that way. So while I can say many things about my identity, right, that my identity, yep, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, I play guitar, all these different things that are bits and pieces of who I am, What we see from this passage today is that Paul is urging us and telling us, you know what, on top of all of that, in front of all of that, before all of that, the primary identity is that child of God comes first. That is who we are first. And his reference then to all is a way to say, you know what, it's not just you. But as you look around, as you see others who are part of the family of faith, others who profess faith in Jesus, that's their primary identity too. That when you look at them, that the first thing that you should see in them is child of God. First, above everything else, before anything else that you list about those people and who you know them to be and what you like about them, maybe what you don't like about them, what you disagree with about them, first on top of all of that child of God, just like I'm a child of God, that we are children of God in that way. So that is our first piece of application here. It's the reminder that that is the identity that comes first. Maybe there's a way that we can help bring that forward this week. Think about how many sentences you can begin with the phrase, because I am a child of God. So if you are a person who likes to a journal or keep a diary or write poetry or, or somehow keep a, a memoir, can you write sentences or phrases or journals this week that begin with, because I am a child of God? How many thoughts of your day can begin with that? Because I am a child of God, I am grateful for the blessings he's provided. Simple blessings like food and a home to live in and clothes to wear. 
all blessings that come because I am a child of God. Because I am a child of God, I am then committed and eager to do what I can with the abilities and talents that he's given to me so that the world that God has made may flourish in how I live and how I use those abilities around me. And I do that because I am a child of God. You see, how many things can you then frame in your day that link back to and connect to and claim the identity that we have in Christ? Because I'm a child of God. If you make a habit of doing that, then then maybe the result is this, that you notice that there's less of a tendency to ground those parts of your identity and your day in pieces apart from God. That when I use more of because I am a child of God, then I start to use less of because I'm so smart or because my business is successful or because I know all the right people. Because you know what? The primary place of my identity is not in how intelligent I am or how popular I may be or how successful I have been. That is not who I am. I am a child of God. So how many places can you find in your day to root out those times when we may try to cling our identity to something apart from Christ and then reconnect it back to Christ again, that I am a child of God. That's one thing we see out of this. The next one, well, this one's a little tougher because I have to admit that that this application comes with a bit of confession that it may be that the Apostle Paul is placing something in front of us, that the Holy Spirit of God through Scripture is placing something in front of us that we need to confront and confess. Times when perhaps we have let divisions, arbitrary divisions, come between us. So we recognize that, you know, there are differences that we have as children of God. That even though we are all children of God, we are not all the same. We are still very different people. But Paul seems to be addressing something very particular in this passage, doesn't he? What he's addressing to the people he wrote this to in those churches in the regions of Galatia, he's telling them, you know what? Do not let your differences between you become divisions between you. We know we have differences, but don't let those differences become divisions. So how does that show up? Well, Paul puts it in this passage with with three examples that he talks about, right? He says, well, in Christ then, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Gives three examples. And it's not that Paul's giving here a comprehensive list. He's giving examples, examples that apply to probably hot-button issues of division in his time and in his place and in where he was living. So the hard work of interpreting the Bible for us is to say, okay, so if those were the examples that were sort of the hot-button issues of division in his time, what is it for our time? 
what are those differences between us that have become divisions that Paul is highlighting for us in Scripture? What does that look like? So I may be able to read this passage literally at face value and say, yep, in Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile. I'm on board with that, right? I've got nothing against differences between Jews and Gentiles. Of course not, because that's not relevant for the time and the culture and the world that I live in. But if we were to take that as what Paul is saying as a message of Scripture that carries a timeless application forward, then I have to do the hard work, the hard work of looking at the world that I live in and and saying, okay, where have I seen differences between me and others that I have let become divisions between me and others that I need to confess before the Lord? You see, because I think if the Apostle Paul were here today, if Paul lived now today, he would write this letter a little bit differently, wouldn't he? A modern-day Paul writing a modern-day letter of Galatians would use some different examples. He would tell us, he wouldn't say things about being differences between Jews and Gentiles. He would say, no, no, you modern-day people in modern-day Galatia churches in the modern-day letter of Paul would say, in Christ, you know what, there is neither Republican nor Democrat, right? There is neither conservative nor liberal in Christ. There is neither gay nor straight. In Christ, there is neither black nor white nor immigrant. In Christ, we are joined together in faith. The hot-button issues of division, which we know are differences that Paul says, but wait, look at what he's saying. You are all one in Jesus. You are all one in faith as it comes together for us. And so Paul would remind us that, you know what? It is never acceptable to reject the faith of another person simply because that person's culture or values or experiences or political ideologies happen to be different from your own. It's never okay to dismiss the faith of somebody else simply because they're different from you. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? A challenge for us in our world right now. But it's a challenge which comes before us then in a way that reminds us that, you know what? That's not new for us in our time, is it? If 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul had to write this message to the churches in Galatia because they were letting differences become divisions, you know what? We're not facing anything new today that hasn't been faced before. And the church which was existing 2,000 years before is still the church that exists today. A testimony in Scripture then that, you know what, our, our differences do not overcome the church, do they? That the church has stood, hasn't it? That we have, as God's people, remained under his faithful care and protection for generation upon generation upon generation, even with those things that we struggle through. So maybe the application here for you today is simply to recognize that, that you know what? 
yeah, I am struggling with this. You know what? It is a world that is divided. And you know what? There are differences between me and other people. And you know what? I have to confess before God that maybe I've even had the tendency to allow those differences to become divisions between me and other people of faith. And I struggle with that. Maybe that's okay to admit that and confess that before God, that you know what? That's a struggle. It was a struggle for them 2,000 years ago, and look at us here in the church today. We are still struggling with the same things. But it's a confession before God. A confession that says, God, I admit, I confess, I am struggling. We are struggling. The church is struggling. In a Holland newspaper last week, there was a story of one of my colleagues, a Christian Reformed Church pastor in a church south of Holland, Michigan, here in West Michigan, who walked away from his church, said, I can't handle this anymore because his congregation was so bitterly deadlocked and divided and fighting against one another because of differences that they've allowed to become divisions. But these are not new things, right? These differences have been in the church since the beginning. And God calls us then to return back to his faithful promise that he will always hold on to us. He will never leave us. That he will always be faithful to his church. So now is the time then. Now is the time with the whole world watching for us to show that example. That example that says, you know what? I know we're not all the same. I know we have differences, but we are not divided because of those things. We are one in Christ. The identity that we have, every single one of us, begins with one thing and one thing only, child of God. In faith through Jesus, you are a child of God, no matter how different we may be from one another. That is what we carry together. Now is the time for us to do that. We do that then in ways that affirm for us that we are not held captive anymore under these laws that keep us apart. We are not held captive under standards that push us away. But rather, we are free in the faith that we have in Jesus to come together. That we are not slaves to bitterness or division. We're not slaves to hatred or envy. But we come before God as his children together. Or as the Apostle Paul says it in verse 7 today, you are no longer a slave but you are God's child. And since you are his child, you have been made an heir, a recipient of his righteousness given to you. Let's pray together. God, we come to you today, Lord, and we confess that, yep, we are divided people, that we have let our differences become divisions. Lord, and we pray today that... uh, that in those times and places when we have found those differences to become divisions, that, God, we pray that you would call us back again. Call us back again to know and remember the ways in which we are first and foremost your children. That we are called to be one of your children through faith and faith alone. 
And so, Lord, give us the times and the places this week to reclaim that identity, to start those phrases with, because I am a child of God. Lord, give us that um, uncomfortable prompting of your Holy Spirit to confess the tension that we have when we've let our differences become divisions. And Lord, bring us back again to be one people held together in faith. And may that be for your honor and your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's respond by standing.